The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. It's on page 1156 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. I want to do something this morning I don't think I've ever done. I, uh, I'm actually going to re-preach a sermon from the prior weekend. Uh, Except last weekend, I was at the men's retreat. I wasn't here. I was with 140, 150 guys up there in New Hampshire. It was an awesome time. If you're a dude and you didn't go, you need to go next year. We just had a great time uh, hanging out together and and getting closer to each other and to the Lord. But uh, I I wanted to re-preach this. I just felt led to do it. I I felt like it was a a message, not only that that blessed our men, but I, I think would be good for our church in many ways. And in a lot of ways, this text we're going to study really does kind of fit hand in glove with um, what we've been studying in the Gospel of John. We've been noticing in John how much God loves us and how he's become our father and, and what it means to, to know his love as father. And that was the theme of the men's retreat. Uh, for those uh, perhaps you heard about it, the theme of our men's retreat was our father in heaven. How do we know God as our Father? What does it mean to have God as our Father? I think uh, for many people, we think of God as creator, judge, um, king, uh, the big guy upstairs, you know. And, and he is those things. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the holy one. But in Christ, we're invited to address God. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. And that's kind of tricky because for a lot of us, we get to the topic of father and we think about our earthly fathers and that's not necessarily a helpful thing. For a lot of us, our earthly fathers were uh, less than helpful. They, they, they were disappointing to us in some ways. For some of us, we didn't even know our fathers because they, were, they abandoned us or, or weren't there for us. And so, so it's interesting that we're thinking about how to know God as our father and yet our earthly fathers can make that sort of theological leap complex in different ways. And so, so how do we get to know God as our Father? What do we do? And that's sort of what we're wrestling with that whole weekend. What does it mean to know God as our Father? How do we, how do we accomplish that? Do we need to go to uh, counseling for two years and kind of work through our issues with our earthly fathers? And once those are kind of sorted out and in place, then we'll be in a place to actually know uh, our Heavenly Father. Or do we need to uh, get some things sorted out in our lives first? Maybe we need to get some habits under control, join a 12-step program. And once those things are are sort of sorted out and under control, then we'll be ready to know God as our Father. Or maybe we just need to go on to a men's retreat or a women's retreat or join a monastery for two months or something where we we just kind of tune everything else out and listen to God. And all those would be good things. None of those are necessarily bad things. And yet it would be easy to do any of those and still not really know what it means that God loves us as our Heavenly Father. See, the key to knowing God as your Father isn't something that we do to get there. It's rather standing in awe of and recognizing the fact that God has already done all the work necessary to make us His sons and daughters. God has already done everything required for you and me to be, as we just sang, the children of God. He is the one who does the work. And so really, a a lot of knowing God as your Father is just kind of standing there and letting that 
sort of tsunami wave of his love wash over you and, and reveling in it. That, that's is what breaks our hearts open. And so look here at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul talks about that love of God, that God has done all the work to make us his sons and daughters. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We read this at the very beginning of the service. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul starts out this letter in a kind of volcanic eruption of worship. He's saying, praise God. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's, it's kind of this loud, exciting start to the letter. This, this letter starts with trumpets and fireworks and fanfare. It, it, it's Paul just erupting in praise to God for who God is and what God has done in, in, in Christ, what he's done for us, the blessings. You, you know, you, you can't really see this in the English translations, but it comes out in the, the Greek New Testament. You, you know, you hear pastors talking about the Greek in the original Greek. You know, the, the English Bibles we have today are fantastic. If you're using an English Bible, the translation you have is great. You don't need to know ancient Greek to appreciate God's word. But this is one of those times where it just adds a little bit of extra oomph to it. Because what you notice in Greek is that actually, starting at verse 3 all the way to verse 14 of chapter 1, in Greek is one big sentence. You know, they've, it's been broken up here into multiple sentences just for readability in this English translation. But in Greek, it's just one huge sentence. It's like Paul's just so excited about what he wants to tell us that it, it comes pouring out. You, you know, when, um, when my kids come home from school, most of the time you say, how was your day? Good. Did you learn anything? No. Okay, anything you want to tell me? Not really. But every once in a while, like every you know, five to six years, they'll come home and, and they'll just, like you can't shut them up. They'll be like, oh, Dad, i got to tell you what happened school day. Shut the door. Okay, yeah, so this happened. And, then, and, then, and they, they go on and on because something really exciting happened. And then they just they keep talking, like in one big breath. And, you know, moms and dads love those moments when the kids just tell them about their day. Well, that, that's where Paul is at here in verses 3 to 14. He is... He has seen the blessings that Jesus has gotten for us. He has seen what God has done. He's standing so in awe of it that he not only says, praise God, but then he goes on from verse 4 to 14 to rattle off all these different reasons why we should praise God and what the spiritual blessings are that God has given us that's got him so fired up. So so I say that because throughout this, this message, I want you to kind of keep that tone in mind. You know, so you've you got to not only kind of listen for what the text is saying, but the tone in which the text is saying it. And the tone here is one of just crazy worship and delight. Uh, it, it's like, um, I remember this was given at a men's retreat. It's like if you were at uh, the World Series. And it was the Red Sox in the World Series. Imagine game seven, bottom of the ninth, Red Sox at bat, and they're down three runs with three men on base. Two outs, full count. It's like the last pitch of the game. And imagine that Red Sox player just connecting with that ball and crushing it over the wall. You know, Red Sox Nation, how would you feel in that moment? I mean, you'd be jumping around like a spider monkey. You know, you'd just be like, woo! You know, you'd be hugging the guy next to you. You'd be hugging his wife. You'd spill your beer, your, uh, your Coke all over people around you. You know, Boston would burn to the ground. 
It would be the most epic day in sports history ever that would be talked about for generations of Bostonians who would pass on the great moment. You know, it would, it would be so huge. And that's, all right, so you get that vibe. That's the vibe you've got to like feel coming out of this passage in verse 3 when Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like screaming it. He's blessed us so much. This is the greatest moment in human history, what God has done for us in Jesus. And it's only when we, we sense the awesomeness of our salvation that we will really have no problem talking about God as our Father. And that's not going to be a hard leap to make. It, we're just going to be amazed at his love for us. Okay, so what has God done for us? What is it that's blowing Paul's mind? What is it that's launching him into orbit, that's making him jump around like a spider monkey, screaming and yelling and so excited about his blessings? Well, it's everything in verses 4 to 14, which I'm not going to preach on all of it today. But let me pick out three highlights, three little examples of what God has done from this text uh, of, of the many we could dwell on, and just think about his great fatherly love toward his people toward his sons and daughters. And so the first one is in verses 4 through 6. The first blessing is predestination. Look at verse 4. For he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God has chosen us. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. Before the creation of the world, before anything was ever done, God determined to save people. He said, I'm going to save you. I'm predestining you to be my sons and my daughters. I'm going to adopt you into my family. And so God has predestined us, and he's predestined us both to be his sons and daughters and to be holy. Obviously, those two have to go together because you cannot be God's child if you're not holy, because God is holy. Nobody can stand in the presence of God without holiness and purity. And so if we're going to be adopted into God's family, we also must be predestined to be made holy and blameless in his sight. It's sort of a package deal. So here's God determining that and choosing that, and it's making Paul jump up and down as he looks at this first kind of big tsunami of God's love, which is predestination. So are you feeling that or not? See, I I think this is one of the ones where we go, wait a minute, this doesn't feel so much like the Red Sox. This feels more like kind of a mental root canal. I, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, whenever we hear about predestination in the Bible, we just kind of shut down and we go, oh, no, yeah, this is hard. I'm not excited about this. This gives me a headache. This is what people fight about. Why are we talking about this? Which is interesting because whenever Paul brings it up or whenever the New Testament writers bring up predestination, they seem to be fired up about it. They they, they sort of think that predestination should be kind of like boosting us closer to God, that that predestination should be lifting us in worship, not suppressing worship like it does for us. So somehow there's a disconnect between the way the Bible wants us to think about it and the, the effect it should have on our hearts versus the way we tend to think about it, which has the opposite effect on our hearts. And so I think, you know, one of the keys is, is one of the mistakes we make, one of the reasons there's a disconnect, is I think we tend to only view it as a philosophical problem. 
we, we primarily view it as a kind of logical Gordian knot to untie. We, we sort of see it as a, a, a theoretical Rubik's Cube where you just got to kind of put all the things in place. And we, we sit there and we've wrestled with it. And we're like, ah, I can't figure it out. Boom, we put it down. Not going to think about that problem anymore. And, and just to be clear, it is a philosophical challenge in a lot of ways. It's something that people wrestle with. And you should think about it. You, you should wrestle with it intellectually. I'm, I'm not asking you not to use your minds. And I've wrestled with it intellectually. And it, it's, a, it's a great uh, challenge theologically to try to wrestle down. Um, and just understand that you're never going to figure it out. So as long as you're cool with that, wrestle away. You know? Just know that ultimately there is, there is a point of mystery that you hit because we cannot understand the ways of God. And if we could, well, he wouldn't be God. So wrestle, learn as much as you can, but realize you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns on that where, where there's a humility that has to come into the picture, a, a kind of, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. We have to reach that place. That's why I'm always nervous when people think they've figured out predestination and they can explain it to you. Oh, that's easy. That's easy. You know, because this is how it works. See, God is outside of time. And so God's looking at time from the outside, which means he sees the past, the present, and the future all all at the same time. Because, you know, of course, we all know what it's like to be outside of time, don't we? So, you know, this is how God sees it. It's past, present, future. So when he says predestined, all he's really saying is that he sees the present as the past from the future. And so he sees it at once. So he's not really choosing anybody. He's just telling us what's actually going to happen. You've heard that, that kind of explanation. Or sometimes people explain it this way. They say, you know, predestination, it's sort of like God hasn't really chosen any specific person, but he's chosen the way we're saved, which is through Christ. And so we have to choose whether or not we belong to Christ, but he chooses that we're saved in Christ. Kind of like God chooses the lifeboat, and then it's up to us whether or not to stay on the Titanic or get in the lifeboat. Right? So, you know, you get these explanations, and then, you know, you hear them, and you're like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. Oh, well, I guess it's not a problem after all. Just one little problem. None of those explanations are in the Bible. <laughs> That's never how the Bible talks about it. The way the Bible explains it is like this. God is God and he does what he wants. Oh, that doesn't solve it. You know, this is how the Bible explains it. Verse, uh, verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Why? How? In accordance with the pleasure of his will. Verse 11, in him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to what? The plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. His purpose, his will, his choice. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. It's like, oh, that didn't solve it for me. Wow, I don't, I don't quite understand it. And so I think we get stuck right there. That's where we stop. We go like, oh, I can't figure this out. I wish we didn't talk about this. Forget it. One of the patriots on. But we need to think about it in a different way, which is that it is an incredible act of God's love toward us. This is the word we're missing when we think about predestination. It's at the end of verse 4, right before verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. It is a tremendous, beyond my comprehension act of divine love toward us in Christ. 
It's, so somehow I have to get to the place where, yeah, it's okay to wrestle with the philosophical stuff, but I've got to put it down and, and go from my head to my heart and say, what is God trying to communicate about his love? And, and it's that he's, he has put all this work into saving me. He, he loves me that much. We need to stop seeing it as a Rubik's Cube and start seeing predestination more like a big surprise party. You guys know how surprise parties are. They're so fun. Maybe you've planned a surprise party for someone. It's like their 40th birthday or it's uh, some couple's 50th anniversary. And so you, you plan this big surprise party. And if you've ever planned one of those, they're really fun. They're really hard work. You have to make sure that all the people you want to come to the party can make it on a certain day and make sure that they don't tell anyone else that the surprise party's coming. And then you've got to get the guy or, or the lady who you're trying to trick and make sure that you get them to the place at the right time, but without them knowing that you're getting them to the place for a surprise party. And, and, and if you can get them there so that they're a little bit annoyed when I get there, that's like perfect. So, so they feel like they're getting yanked around. They're like, what are we doing this stupid thing? I don't want to come to your, your, uh, you know, your office Christmas party. And then you walk in, and it's not the office Christmas party. It's a surprise party for you. And then the lights come on, and everyone jumps out and goes, surprise, you know? The person's like, what? What, what, what? And then the fun thing about surprise parties is like the couple hours right after the lights come on surprise because in that couple hour period, the person's sitting there going, so wait a minute. So when you, wait, oh, so when you sent that email, that really, that you're just trying to get me there so that that could, oh, oh, you know, you put so much work into it. It's incredible. Which, uh, by the way, men, uh, this is why women love surprises. Like they say they don't, but I think they do, because it means you thought about it. You put thought into it, and that's what really counts, is what you're thinking, even if you didn't think it, you know. I used to get in trouble for things I say, now I just get in trouble for things I didn't even know I thought. It's, uh, <laughs> it's great being in a relationship. So... And here's the Lord. He's thought about all this. It's so, so, you know, we finally come to Jesus. We finally come to that place in our lives where we're like, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And we cross the line of faith and we put our faith in Christ and we think, I have made this big commitment, which you have. I have taken a big step of faith, which you have. But you get across that line and then the lights come on and God jumps out and yells, surprise! I got you. I've been working on this. And we're going, What? Wait a minute, I, I, I thought I chose you, but you're telling me you chose me first and the reason I chose you is because you chose me? How does that work out? Can you explain that to me, God? Oh, yeah, I could explain it, but you probably wouldn't get it. So it'd be like explaining calculus to a dog. You know, so just, you're not going to get it. How long have you been working on this, God? Oh, I don't know, since before the foundation of the world. <laughs> I've been planning this. And, th- and then a lot of, you know, in your Christian life, as you progress as a Christian, one of the things that often happens is as you look back on your life in those reflective moments and you see the way God was at work B.C., before Christ. And you go, oh, yeah, that's what you were doing. And, and I think some of heaven is going to be having all the time and the perspective we need to not just see all of the work of God in our own lives but the work of God in all of human history working in an incredibly complex way toward the salvation of all his saints. And we'll just stand at, at the end of history and look at the whole incredible fabric of the work of God in salvation. And it'll take all of eternity to see all of it and be like, wow! And once we see it all, we're like, 
tell me that again. I need to see that again. And eternity, just to stand in awe of the incredible power and plan of God. How different this father is than some of our earthly fathers who sent the message that they were too busy for us, that they did not have time, that we were a nuisance, that we were uh, a burden. Here's not a father who's too busy for us. This is a father who has been orchestrating all things for his glory to bring us to be his sons and daughters. And just when you let that wave crash over you, you know, it just breaks your heart open. You say, this father loves me in a way that my brain can barely even start to scratch the surface of. So that's the first tsunami of love. But great, there's more waves coming. Here's wave number two. The first is that the Father before time predestined us. The second is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, died for us. Look at verse 7. In Him, again, this is all in Jesus. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all Wisdom and understanding. Again, God's motive in all this is his own wisdom, his own understanding, his own plans. And so he not only predestined, he not only made the plan, but he executed the plan. He sent Jesus to die for us, to be redeemed, to be set free out of slavery. That's what that word means. Through his blood, we've been redeemed and have our sins forgiven. Because here's the deal. Nobody is born a child of God. We're not children of God, naturally. We're children of this world. We're the sons and daughters of Adam. We're the children of perdition. We're the sons and daughters who are enslaved to sin. Jesus said, uh, anyone who sins is a slave to sin, which would mean us, all of us. We all are in need of redemption. Our natural spiritual condition before Jesus rescues us is described very succinctly and yet powerfully in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Since we're right here in Ephesians, just look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were spiritually dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirits are now at work in those who are disobedient. We, We all thought we were free spirits doing what we wanted to, but in reality, we were just doing what the world does. We we were living in disobedience to God. We were under the sway of of the kingdom of the air, even though we didn't even realize it. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were not objects of love. God did not save us because it was like, oh, they're so awesome, how could I not save them? No, we were objects of wrath. But in God's free will, he chose to save and so he not only had to predestine us to be holy, he had to make a way for us to become holy. How, how do people like that become holy enough to become the children of God? And the answer is God had to forgive our sins and, and rescue us from this damned condition as objects of wrath. And so how did he do it? He sent Jesus, again, go back to chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' blood is what forgives us. Jesus' death for us is what lets us be uh, holy and blameless in God's sight. Not that we are inherently holy and blameless, but Jesus' blood forgives and cleanses us so that we stand holy and blameless 
in his sight. God has come on this great rescue mission. Um, I, I was uh, sharing with the men at the retreat. It, it made me think of this movie. Uh, I kind of enjoyed it. It's, it's a uh, sort of an action flick called Taken with Liam Neeson. Um, and so, it, it, you know, again, this was a men's retreat. So, uh, but uh, yeah, in this movie, Liam Neeson, he's this uh, guy who had some kind of training in his past that made him kind of a ninja, sort of. He was CIA agent, Delta Force, you, you know, I don't know, G.I. Joe, something. But he, uh, so, so he knew all these, you know, he knew how to like kill people with a wet piece of spaghetti. And um, he could like track you down wherever you were, sort of a Jack Bauer type. And in the movie, his daughter gets abducted. His one and only daughter is abducted. She goes on a trip to Europe and she gets captured and, and gets pulled into a human trafficking ring, which is kind of interesting. So that's what makes the movie interesting is that you think the movie is primarily a, uh, an action, you know, good guy, karate chops, 45 bad guys kind of movie. But you realize it's going on. It's, it is that. There's, there is a pretty good body count. But uh, there's also in the movie... Um, there, there is this other theme of exposing human trafficking. You, you know, you get a kind of look into the gritty underside of that, which is something that, that I think sometimes we don't think about a lot, but human trafficking is just an international cancer, you know, in the world. It's even here in Boston. It goes on here in Boston, and it's just, you know, and, and mostly it's, for the most part, it's women, and, and it's the, the sex trade, and it's, it's just a horrible expression of human evil. That, that is uh, a, a global market. And so this movie, like, not only shows, you know, the action flick of this guy doing kung fu and shooting people and stuff, but it's also, you know, it's, it's trafficking. So what it kind of does is it makes you feel uh, not so guilty about watching a movie like that because every time you shoot some of the bad guys, you're like, oh, I got a trafficker. Praise Jesus. This is awesome. Um, I'm kind of, like, worshiping even as I watch him. Ha <laughs> uh, It's weird. Finally, you know, he goes after his daughter. He tracks her down. He, he works his way through the sewers of the, the underbelly of this awful trafficking system to get his daughter. And I thought, you know, that's so much like the gospel. God is on this rescue mission to rescue those who are enslaved. Except there's a twist. Because in the movie, the action hero is going to save his beloved daughter. But in the gospel, God has come to save the traffickers. Us, you know? We're the ones who have taken God's good creation, the the beautiful world that God has made, and turned it into idols and turned it into our own uh, selfish obsessions. Uh, Just before this service, we had our Sunday school hour and Pastor Godwin, who was leading up here, was teaching in uh, Fellowship Hall on the book of Ecclesiastes. And we were talking about the, the theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity. The whole world is meaningless. And, and, and it's, it's, it was a powerful teaching, and in part because it showed what we've done with creation, what we've done with this world in making it futile and self-serving, what sin has done to this world. And, and so in real ways, we have taken what all the gifts God's given us, and we've said, thank you, God, but no thanks. We don't need you. We'll just do it our way. And, and we've hijacked it. We've kidnapped all the good things God has given us. We talked about this at the men's retreat, but if, you know, if you've ever looked at pornography, you may literally be participating in human trafficking. Literally. Because not all of those images are from willing participants. You know? So we're, we're more enmeshed in this 
than we even know. We're part of the system. And God came not to save the beloved daughter, but to save the traffickers. And then get this, in the movie, in order to save the beloved daughter, he kills the traffickers. But in the gospel, in order to save the traffickers, he kills his beloved son. The beloved son, blood is shed to save the people who should be killed. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why Christians are always reminding themselves of the cross. It's because we have to remember that we deserve death for our sin. That is the just punishment for sin. We're the objects of wrath, as we saw. But in his great love, in his free love, God has provided a way out that we could not provide for ourselves Jesus Christ came and he bled and he died so that through faith in Jesus, not through our own efforts or our own attempts to be a better person, but just through clinging to the cross of Christ by faith, we can be forgiven. And whatever your record is, whatever your past, can be wiped clean and we can be restored to God. Have you ever had a father like that? There's, there's just nothing like this. It's amazing. Some of our earthly fathers... There wasn't much grace. Some of us grew up in graceless households. Lots of law, lots of rules, no grace. You know, you do 99 things right, you do one thing wrong, and what do they talk about? The one thing wrong. And, and some of us just felt like, yeah, we can't win. I mean, what's the point? And so sometimes people just rebel. They're like, well, as long as I'm going to be counted a, a failure and a degenerate anyway, might as well just go hard that direction. But God has sent his own son, Christ, to forgive us and save us. There is forgiveness. You can be clean through his blood. It's awesome. Let that wave just crash on top of you as we stand there and just think about the fact that God has done all the work to make us his children. He's predestined us. He's died for us another wave. And then just one more. We we could do a lot here, but I just want to wrap this up with one more. He's also guaranteed us an inheritance through the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 to 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So before time, the Father in love predestined at the fullness of time the son of god in love gave himself and in the present time the holy spirit has come and to those who believe there's a sealing there's a guaranteeing of an inheritance so so he says here in verse 13 when you heard the gospel so this is how you become a christian you hear the gospel you hear this news that jesus christ has died for people like me to forgive me and reconcile me to god and in faith you receive that gospel. Just simple faith, the empty hands of faith. Yes, Christ, I want you. And then when we believe, we're marked with a seal, verse 13, the promised Holy Spirit. So then God puts the Holy Spirit inside of us, and that's like a a spiritual tattoo on your soul, marking you as belonging to God and guaranteeing an inheritance. And it's so great, you can never lose the Holy Spirit. I mean, when it's there, it's there. You, you, You know, there's no legislation in the world that can... Uh, to get rid of it. There's no executive order that can take the Holy Spirit away from you. There's no uh, thing you can do that can jar the Holy Spirit loose. 
he's with you forever, as we learned in John, the Gospel of John. He's with us forever. And that Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you're a child of God and that your inheritance is secure. Because that's one of the great things about being a child. You share in, in the inheritance. You say, inheritance? What inheritance? What, what am I going to get? Well, I don't know. What does our Heavenly Father own? Everything. <laughs> Plus, verse 14, the redemption of those who are God's possession. So the, so the saints are part of God's possession. So my inheritance is everything plus the, the saints, all, all of the people of God, not just this local church, but all of the followers of Christ throughout all the world, both past, present, and future. So, so I get the whole family of God as my inheritance. Plus, we get God himself, which is what it's really all about, to have the Father himself is our inheritance, which is so cool because typically to get an inheritance, dad has to die. And so dad dies, you get inheritance. Dad lives, you don't get inheritance. We're going to get dad plus inheritance. You know? Uh, Many of you uh, I've appreciated have been praying for uh, my father. Uh, he's, He's a member of this church, and some of you know he's been a cancer survivor for 18 years and just battling on and it's really an inspiration to watch not only him battle and be brave but also just his faith in the Lord has has just gotten really strong so I just want to thank everyone here who comes up to me and says hey we're praying for your dad I mean just thank you that you know that's just means so much it's really the most important thing people can do but he just battles on and you know one of the things if, if you have something like cancer or some disease like that you 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 have those conversations with your family like if I you know if I go, like, I want you to do this and this. And, you know, you don't talk about it all the time, but, you know, you got to have those conversations. And, and so one of the things my, my dad said to me once, he said, you know, Jeremy, whenever I go, I want to make sure that, you know, you know when, when my stuff is parceled out, that you get the guns. <laughs> my dad's a huge hunter. He's hunted his whole life. He has some really nice shotguns and rifles. And, and uh, you, you know, when he's like, you get the guns, Jeremy, I was kind of like, yes. There's not much I want, but that's something that, not that I really hunt anymore or anything, but, you know, this is the men's retreat, right? So it's the guns. But if you told me, take your dad's guns, throw them in the ocean, and his cancer would be cured, what would I do? <laughs> I, would, I would stop the service right now. I'd walk out the doors and go do it. You forget it. I would, in a second, of course. Because that's the bummer thing about inheritance is that dad has to die to get the inheritance. But in Christ, the death has already happened. Christ has died. And he's risen. And so we get, we get everything, plus all the saints, plus the Father forever. And we, we, this is the inheritance we have. The, the Bible has a hard time describing the inheritance because it's so great. So it's like as if predestination wasn't enough just to knock you off your feet and the death of Christ wasn't enough, we haven't even gotten to what it's going to be like when we actually get the inheritance for which all of that stuff was done. All that stuff was what's going to bring us to the Lord, to know him forever. It's just awesome and overwhelming. Oh, God's love is so great. If you have a hard time knowing God's love, if you have a hard time knowing that you're his daughter, that you're his son, I would just invite you as often as you can and as many ways as you can to stand on the the bank 
And just look what He's done in choosing, in forgiving, in sending the Spirit. And we could list more. Let your heart meditate on the blessings in Christ. One of the reasons I'm so happy we're in John right now, and my prayer for you as a church is that as we've been slowly working through John chapter 13 to 17, that you would just be won over again by seeing how much the Lord Jesus loves you, how much the Father has done, the gift of the Spirit. It's so awesome. It's awesome. And it's all by grace. It's all by His mercy. We're saved by grace. You know, how do you receive this? How do you become a child of God? Well, you just accept it by grace. You know, it's right there in verse 13. Having believed, you just believe. Or or look at this. Hey, since we're in Ephesians, go to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by trying to be religious. We're not saved by trying to get an addiction under control. We're saved by faith in Jesus. Verse 9, not by works. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's simple faith. In, but it's got to be faith in the right thing. Not just faith kind of generically. It's faith in him, in Christ, so that he gets the glory and we get the joy saw another movie last night, uh, since we're on a movie kick here, I, I finally went and saw Les Mis, and uh, I, I love the, uh, the, the live musical, and the movie was really good too, it really uh, did a great job with it, and uh, it, you know, that's a movie about grace, that's the point of that movie, is grace, you, you know, that scene in the beginning when uh, Jean Valjean is on his knees, caught red-handed, he's been released from prison, he goes to a church to spend the night, is given sanctuary there. And what does he do? He, he sees where they keep the precious silver items. He goes, he puts a bunch of them in his bag, and he sneaks off. He steals the silver. And then the cops catch him. They bring him the next day. They throw him down in front of the priest. And, and there's the, you know, Jean Valjean caught red-handed with the bag of silver in front of the priest. And, and the cops say, yeah, and this guy had the, the temerity. You, you know, actually it was, this guy has the temerity. You know, the whole thing is sung. So, uh, <laughs> You know, to steal the silver. He, he's stolen the silver. And he, he has the, the temerity to say that you actually gave him the silver. And the priest, in, in, a, in an incredibly gracious lie, says, actually, I did give him all that silver. And actually, you forgot something. And he goes and gets the candlesticks. And he, here you go. Hey, you forgot something. Glad you came back for all of it. You know, and it's like, that's grace, Caught red-handed as sinners, waiting for the, the lash of judgment, and to have God say, "Wait a minute, I got some more here for you." Beep, beep, beep. You know, and and when you're a preacher and you watch a movie like that, you want to stand up on your your chair and and just start shouting at the whole auditorium. You know, don't you people understand grace? You know, <laughs> you're not saved by works. You're not saved by driving a Prius. You're not saved by rescuing a dog from the pound. You're not saved by trying to be a religious person. You're saved by grace. You know, you just want to sing it and shout it to the whole world. So I just take it out on you right now since I <laughs> didn't actually do that in the theater. It's grace. We're saved by grace in Christ. And may God's grace just overwhelm you and and cause you to be filled up with praise. And I pray that some of you would even become a child of God today because it's just faith. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I pray for all the children of God in this room that you would give them the gift of revelation so that they might know you better and what you've done. I pray, Lord, for every discouraged Christian, every tired Christian, Lord, every sinning Christian, every backsliding Christian, that, Lord, they would just meditate again on your great love and they would be won over, not by fear and not by threats, but by just being melted. Lord, help us to lay down the mud pies of this world that we've made for ourselves so that we might lay hold of the feast of heaven that is in front of us and be satisfied in you, Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would show them, Lord, that they do need a Savior, that they are children of perdition without Christ. And Lord, may they simply be putting their faith in you. Would you give them that wonderful gift of grace, the wonderful gift of faith in their souls? And I pray, Lord, that the lights would come on and and that they would finally get that salvation is through Christ alone. So, Lord, give us all more revelation, more insight to be able to see and hear and receive these things. We ask all this through Christ, our Savior, for his glory. Amen.